Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. A couple of weeks ago, um, it's Sunday, uh, March the 19th, and a couple of weeks ago, an interesting show where on a new book called The Ship Beneath the Ice. It's a book about the discovery of Shackleton's endurance with um, the great underwater uh, explorer Mensum Bound. Um, and it's a book in part, and our conversation was about Shackleton's in incredible story of his uh, South Atlantic uh, Antarctic explorations. Uh, it was quite astonishing to talk to him about what uh, Shackleton and, and, and some of his uh, associates endured, and they survived. Quite remarkable. And one of the things that I've never quite understood is how they did indeed survive, what mental strength gave them um, the ability to survive such incredibly abject conditions. One man who's given this some thought is my guest today, Ben Alderson Day. He teaches psychology at Durham University. He wrote an interesting piece a few years ago for The Guardian, The Strange World of Felt Presences, what links polar explorer Ernest Shackleton, sleep paralysis and hearing voices. He makes some interesting observations in this piece about the connection between survival and hearing other voices. Uh, I guess what he's suggesting, so to speak, is that we all have ships beneath our ice, and that's what defines our human condition. Um, he has a new book out in which um, he summarizes some of these ideas called Presence, the strange science and true stories of the unseen other. Uh, he's joining us from an attic in Newcastle in, in uh, northeast England, um, and uh, I'm thrilled that he's joining us. Uh, I hope it's the real Ben uh, Alderson Day. Ben, you're not you're not just a presence, are you? Well, it's actually it makes all these interviews a lot easier because you can do many at once if you can duplicate yourself in phantasmal form. But no, today it's it's the real me. I'm sorry for that rather cheap joke, but I couldn't. Uh, I, I'm allowed one cheap joke each show. So Ben, um, what does the story of, of of Shackleton tell us about? The hearing of other voices that you articulate in presence. I mean, your book Presence isn't just about Shackleton, but it's about those kind of experiences. Shackleton really gives us the uh, origin story of one of the most famous presences known as the third man or third man factor. Um, so uh, this is a, a story which goes to the end of Shackleton's expedition, the endurance expedition. And it was a, a trek, a 36-hour trek that Shackleton and two others, Frank Worsley and Tom Crean from the crew of the Endurance, had to make across the interior of South Georgia Island. It was crucial that they did this. Nobody, as far as we know, nobody had ever done it before. And they had barely little more than a carpenter's axe and some rope to do this journey. Um, and it's a real kind of treacherous journey to try and attempt. But had they not made it, uh, the whole of the crew of the Endurance would have been lost. They were scattered between South Georgia Island and Elephant Island, which is basically a rock which is fairly barren, just off Antarctica, without much to eat, without much shelter at all. But they managed it. And the strange thing about uh, that feat was that afterwards, all three men spoke of experiencing a fourth companion, some sort of mysterious 
figure that was with them all the way. Um, now, T.S. Eliot, writing a few years later in 1922, this was 1916. In 1922, T.S. Eliot was composing The Wasteland, his uh, perhaps most famous poem. And he recalled this story of explorers experiencing a phantom figure. Now, in The Wasteland, it becomes the third. He asks, who is the third that always walks beside you? And from that, the legend was born, really. So uh, mountaineers, climbers, solo explorers, expeditioners, many of them will be familiar with this experience, being joined by a sense of another that you can't necessarily see or hear, but somehow sees you over the line or kind of just back from the precipice, often uh, helping, guiding you to safety and survival. So it's, um, it's really, uh, it's one of the biggest pieces of the, the story of presence overall, I try and tell in that book. It's, it's only one piece, but it looms large over how we think about the phenomenon. It's interesting that in a literary sense, um, poets, novelists seem to grasp this perhaps as well as, as scientists. You also quote um, Moby Dick. Uh, I know you have an interest in, in Herman Melville and, and that uh, literary element in terms of making sense of presence of what you call the third man. Certainly. So um, it, it's interesting how often some of the best accounts come through in various different works of literature for those more unusual phenomena in our lives. And, and felt presence, which is essentially the scientific term I would use for these experiences, is defined as the experience of um, someone being close by, but without any clear sensory evidence, so not sight or sound. But it also means it's something that's incredibly hard to describe. Often people run out of words when they try and articulate it to you and just say, it just feels like somebody's there and they, they can't say much more. So we have to look to people like Melville to really articulate um, uh, what that experience really feels like. And that particular passage that you showed just there is a really nice example of uh, a sleep paralysis presence, so a kind of presence that many people get when they wake from sleep early hours of the morning and they find that they feel awake, but their bodies aren't awake. Yeah, I might read it for because some people will be listening to this. Um, and, and you write in Moby Dick, Herman... Melville wrote, at last I must have fallen into a troubled nightmare of a doze and slowly waking from it, half steeped in dreams, I opened my eyes and before, and the before sunlit room was now wrapped in outer darkness. Instantly I felt a shock running through all my frame. Nothing was to be seen and nothing to, was to be heard, but a supernatural hand seemed placed in mine. I mean, this is the language... Um, of horror, of extraterrestrial literature. You're a professor, um, Ian, of psychology at Durham. You're a, a PhD. Indeed, the word PhD is put on your title. That's why I put it in the lower third here. Um, where does the mystery, the religion, the metaphysics be begin where the science ends? Do these two worlds are they clearly separate or are they increasingly becoming one and the same? Uh, well, I, I think my approach to this would be don't rule things out and listen to what people have to tell you. Uh, so you mentioned that I work at Durham. I've been working here since 2012. And a large part of what I've been doing over the past decade was working for this project called Hearing the Voice, right. funded by the Wellcome Trust. It was this big project that essentially was about exploring the phenomenon of hearing voices that other people can't hear or sometimes known as auditory hallucinations. And it was about trying to draw on a range of uh, disciplines and perspectives and kind of models of thinking to try and approach voices in a new way. 
because we know this experience essentially can be interpreted in many different ways and has been across many different societies and cultures over time. And if you approach it with a very specific model of what you think is true metaphysically, what's possible in the world, then sometimes conversations just don't begin. And you don't hear about particularly these more unusual and hard to explain experiences. Now, it might be because of my training as a psychologist, eventually I try and make sense of those in terms of uh, scientific and psychological phenomena. Um, but you miss out on so many stories if you approach um, the question from the start, I think, with too rigid a model of what's possible and, and what can be known about the world. So um, I, uh, it's almost a form of pluralism, really, in how you approach these sorts of questions. And, and it means you can hear some really extraordinary stories. Um, so well, I as an, hope so, if you're hearing the voice. Um, I mean, have you heard the voice, Ian? Uh, uh, no, I um, I have never heard a voice. I've never had a vision. I've never had a presence. Uh, I am very uh, unhallucination prime. Um, but uh, I suspect that just makes me more curious to, to hear from people who've mm. had these sorts of Maybe you need to go to South Georgia and trek across the island. I, yeah, that, I mean, I would probably do it. I mean, either, you know, extreme conditions like that or uh, sleep deprivation are usually a surefire way to start having really unusual perceptions and sensory experiences. So I could definitely have a go, uh, but no, nothing yet. We seem to live in very odd, we, we always live in odd times, uh, Ian, but particularly odd these days. Uh, we had a show a couple of years ago with a very popular, I don't know what you call him, a scientist from Harvard University, Avi Loeb, a astrophysicist of uh, rather eccentric, uh, I think, uh, some of his work. Uh, he has a new book. He had a new book out, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth uh, from 2021. It's already a huge hit. Um, it seems as if two things are going on simultaneously in our culture. Maybe you can explain it. On the one hand, our science knows more and more about the universe. We have stronger and stronger telescopes. We can learn more and more about the origins of ourselves and of our universe. Uh, and on the other hand, the idea of other voices, the third voice, of extraterrestrials, of some form that we can't explain is becoming increasingly popular. Um, where do we make sense of that? Is it in our own minds, Ian? You're a, you're a psychologist. What has happened to our minds in our age of science to make us so hungry for other kinds of presence? Well, um, I mean, first point, my, my name is Ben rather than Ian, but that, mm. that's okay. I just uh, miss oh, I was thinking of Ian. <laughs> yeah, you're the other one. Um, I apologize. I, you look uh, like, uh, but you are, of course, Ben Alderson Day. Apologies. Um, no, no problem. Um, so I think the answer to that kind of question really actually goes back to the 19th century. So in the 19th century, you get the birth of movements like spiritualism and uh, a real interest in the possibility of um, contacting the dead or, you know, people who've passed on. Um, and usually uh, one interpretation of why that happened was that you had a receding of the power of the established church and the Christian church, at least in, in the UK and the US, where spiritualism really sprang up. It started in upstate New York. Um, and you could kind of essentially say there's that longer narrative there that as more established forms of religion play less of a part in our lives, then people turn to other forms of um, 
in a way, I want to say wonder and an interest yeah. in kind of, you know, looking into a spiritual realm. Spiritualism would, would it be only one example. It could be many aspects of, say, new age thinking. But I think it's it's no mistake. Actually, there's, there's also, you know, more recent trends. And we can, in the UK at the moment, there's a lot of interest in the moment at things like um, the Uncanny. More generally, there's even a BBC podcast called Uncanny that's really been a real big hit. Um, and uh, I think for that, what you need to look at are, are the wider surroundings of what's, you know, what's putting us under threat right now. We've got the climate crisis. We've got various different economic crises. We've got war affecting people's lives. Um, and we've got people worried about, you know, how they're going to put food on the table, how they're going to pay the bills. Whenever we're put under pressure in our kind of material lives, I think something beyond that life becomes more interesting for some people. That's where they'll look for answers instead. So um, I think we both have to both look uh, long and short for a view on why people then find these sorts of concepts and ideas attractive. That's an interesting argument, Ben, but some people might suggest we actually live in the best of times, at least in terms of our material well-being. Um, in the Middle Ages, people were perpetually hungry, perpetually ravaged by one kind of disease or other. Um, did did religious or are do religious cultures have this same sense of presence or the third man, the ship beneath the uh, ice, or is it all channeled into formal religion? Um, I think these sorts of experiences happen across um, cultures and societies and are a core part of some um, uh, religious movements. Interestingly, Shackleton, for example, and his colleagues, the name that they did put to the third man was was Providence. Um, essentially, that was how they understood what had saved them um, in that in that process. And they did talk about it in spiritual terms, but they were also very reticent to. Um, so Shackleton um, said there were some things uh, which never can be spoken of, as if it was part of a, a, a realm that one shouldn't uh, try to um, describe in some way. Um, but there's a big theoretical question really about um, whether the presences of religion and particularly kind of organized practicing religions that seek to make a connection with this other, whether the presences that emerge in that context or that people experience are the same sorts of thing that we get, say, in examples of, you know, the boundaries of sleep or indeed in survival situations. So somebody like uh, Tanya Lerman, a cultural anthropologist at Stanford, who I've worked with a bit in the past, she's published extensively on this topic. Uh, she had two books, um, When God Talks Back, and more recently, uh, How God Becomes Real. And what she studies is uh, movements for whom it's so important to connect directly with, say, a religious presence. What kind of things do they do to inculcate the right conditions put somebody in the right mindset to say hear the voice of god or feel the presence of god on even for example a park bench uh, that's the example she gave to me when i interviewed her for the book um and, and what she argues is, is there are there are very specific practices which create this particular sense of presence um my own hunches some of those things will be slightly different um, not least because sometimes when people talk about religious presence they talk about almost being in the presence of something bigger than them, something that's about the whole environment and landscape that you're in, uh, as if it's a higher power. Um, but let's take sleep, for example. When people have these sleep paralysis presences, like that example from Moby Dick, often we're talking about something very, very localised. It's as if there's a phantom figure or a mannequin right around you. 
And for that, as a psychologist, I start to think about mod models of how we understand the body and space and how those things can be transformed and disrupted um, essentially by disrupting our own bodily sense of self. I mean, the Christians um, made sense out of people, saints, not sense, saints out of people who supposedly experience this other presence. Uh, what do we or should we do with those who hear this third voice? What do we make of them in our own secular culture or what should we make of them? Um, well, I think some people will be distressed by this experience. It'll affect how much they can function in society. It might be intensely distressing and upsetting. And that's essentially my, where I come in with this book because I started getting interested in presence an example of those that happen in psychosis. Um, and in that context, we really have to think, well, it's about the impact on somebody's life and what kind of support they might need as they would for any other unusual experience if it's affecting somebody's functioning, um, which is always feels like a very clunky word, but it's, you know, is this presence stopping you go out, going out of the house? Is this presence stopping you going to work or staying at school or something like that? And that's, that's a kind of, key and concrete marker of how we should think about some of these things but, but um, we, we 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 did a show last year with a, a woman who wrote a book about her own autism mm -hmm. it seems to me again that i am be careful here but autism is i wouldn't say being normalized but being turned into a mainstream issue um, and works like hers suggest that it's not an unusual condition. Is there a connection between that kind of thinking and what you write about in presence and what you've seen or heard in hearing the voice? Um, I think there is a connection in terms of um, kind of ethos and values and being open to the diversity of people's experiences. So, the kind of change that you're describing in terms of how people are thinking about autism now is recognizing that it's a part of people's identity. It probably affects more people. I shouldn't even say affect. It's part of who people are. Um, and there'll be many more people who would describe themselves as autistic um, that we maybe appreciate um, or would have thought would be the case even 10 years ago. Um, I think a key thing about autistic thinking now is really emphasizing that just because somebody's mind and brain work differently doesn't mean that there's necessarily a, a deficit or a problem that that's actually about how they interact with society and how their needs kind of um, intermesh with what society says is the norm and, and the way they should be functioning um, in terms of the very specific uh, you know experience of felt presence as far as I know that's not part of um, uh, that's not been studied it hasn't been researched on how autistic people would have that kind of experience. I mean, it's a very sensory experience as well. And we do know that the senses work in very, very different ways in autism. So um, it would, I think it would be foolhardy to speculate on how these sorts of things would work for an autistic person without proper research being done on it. As I said, your book comes with uh, the description of you, Ben Alderson Day, PhD. Uh, you've got your doctorate in psychology. Are all the answers scientific, Ben? Um, or, 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 or you as a scientist, are you still left scratching your head? I mean, obviously, science is itself a narrative, so not everything in science is known. But are you confident that we can figure this thing out with science, these third voices? 
I mean, I guess um, it's, uh, it, that's my way of asking uh, you uh, whether you might have a religious quality to your thought or potentially a religious quality to your thought too. Hmm, good question. Uh, I think one of the things that I'm trying to show in the book is that many of these experiences can be understood via a psychological lens uh, in terms of the models we have for how the brain constructs a sense of self, how the brain tells us where our body is in space, how the mind responds to adversity and stress. Um, but I'm always wary of these, you know, sometimes you get these kind of books uh, on the brain or mind that start off by saying this is the radical new theory, which is going to tell you how consciousness works. or This is going to tell you absolutely how the whole mind works. And they almost never do. They almost never can because the answers that we have are piecemeal and incremental um, when we take a scientific approach. We have to be very careful about the findings that we have and we have to replicate them and doing, you know, particularly work on the brain, neuroimaging, there's an awful lot of stuff like false positives, essentially findings that don't replicate. So my default position is to go, look, I can understand this bit scientifically and that bit scientifically, but I wouldn't even want to claim that all of these things can definitely be understood using scientific means um, because it's always a bit of a work in progress. Um, and I'm also very wary of, you know, doubting people's um, own religious experiences. That's not for me to do, really. Um, and uh, that would be my, me putting my own kind of you know, values and metaphysics on, on somebody else, really. So um, I guess the, you know, the ethos of the book is not to kind of do a psychological land grab, for want of a better word. Um, uh, but I, I guess part of your question is also is, is a personal question about my own spiritual and religious beliefs. And um, I wouldn't necessarily describe myself as a religious person or even a spiritual person. I'm probably just more curious, really, about the, the nature of people's inner experiences. We live, uh, uh, Ben, in the age of what many people call anxiety, particularly amongst young people. There's a real sense of anxiety, many, much of it apparently caused by the climate crisis or by war or by economic uncertainty. But none of these things, maybe apart from the climate crisis, none of these things are new. Um, do you think that there is a connection between our age of anxiety and the, the disenchantment, the, 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 the disenchanting quality of 20th and 21st century life? And is the work you do uh, in presence and hearing the voice, is it a kind of answer? Might it help people's anxiety to understand that the third voice is natural, normal, not unusual, helpful? I, I mean, I would hope so. It's certainly, um, we know from that work on hearing the voice and the work of many other people who've, who've studied um, what might be termed psychotic experiences, unusual experiences, that um, very often the, the most damaging thing can be somebody having this kind of experience and thinking they're the only person it's ever happened to, they're a bad person because it's happening to them, and being anxious about it happening again. And you can guarantee that if those three things come along, then it is going to happen again and it's going to be worse the next time and worse after that and things will spiral. And so um, having a, a level of literacy within society about um, about these kinds of experiences and actually how normal they are and how common they are, even though they might be fundamentally very unusual and strange, is is the first step in, in helping people manage those experiences when they're distressing. Um, but not all experiences like those 
are some of them are very positive and supportive and, and meaningful for people and I, and I think um they can offer solace in in many different situations and contexts so one would hope that um this kind of book encourages conversations where people are open to uh these different kinds of interpretations and different experiences of the unusual um and the uncanny um but i think um more broadly, I mean, you mentioned, you know, all those things going on in the world around us that could provoke anxiety, but saying, well, there's nothing new here. But I think um, we've got to look back and think, well, actually, in, in other times of kind of huge distress for societies, it's highly likely that there was problems with mental health and trauma. We just didn't frame it in that way. You know, we might talk about the age of anxiety now, but that's because we've got this language of talking about things in terms of mental health, whether it's anxiety or depression, for good or bad. Um, and that's how people are interpreting, you know, their their distress in response to really difficult circumstances. Um, so I think that that is a new situation now where we've got the kind of the language of mental health interacting with the stresses of, of the world around us. Um, and incidentally, a, a really interesting book that came out, when was it, two years ago now by the um, British clinical psychologist Lucy Folks um, spoke to this particular Yeah, issue. Lucy was on the show, actually. Yeah, yeah. And I think she writes beautifully about you know, the, the double-edged sword sometimes of, of normalizing language around mental health, you know, you, for every person whom you normalize an experience, you might be trivializing somebody else's. Um, and indeed, sometimes people be, might latch on to the language of mental health when it they that might not be what they need. They might need somebody else to say, look, this is just an, an okay and an ordinary reaction, but you're not at the level of having, you know, a, a mental health problem. Um, so um, uh, I don't mean to oversimplify that debate and anybody who's interested in that I would really encourage you to have a look at Lucy's book. Uh, ben, I'm guessing uh, on the Shackleton front one of the things that brought out his third voice was the extreme hunger. I'm not sure fear doesn't sound to be doesn't sound as if he's a particularly fearful figure uh, but um, hunger, cold. What about external forces and perhaps ones which are we purposely use to create presence like psychedelics? Um, the taking of psychedelics now is becoming increasingly mainstream, less and less controversial. I have some friends in Berlin developing a, a company that are, are making and distributing uh, psychedelic products. What's your feeling and take on that? Should this be something that's encouraged? And is this something that brings out the third man, your presence? So the... Um... Psychedelics can certainly induce a variety of different forms of presence. In fact, there was once going to be a psychedelics chapter um, in in presence until I realized that I'm definitely not the person to write that chapter. Uh, maybe, so I, yeah, I, I can't resist this joke, but maybe you should have taken some. I, yeah, maybe I should have done. You know, in truth, I'm a coward, so I probably wouldn't take those things because I don't know what, how I react. Don't um, like a coward to me. <laughs> um, uh, where cowardice can take many forms. Um, so, yeah, no, I've been, as part of Hearing the Voice, I, I had the opportunity to work with some real experts on um, psychedelics. So there's a guy, a British guy called Tassim Narani, who's a fantastic scholar looking at how, in a way, psychedelics are getting repurposed, particularly by, partly by the medical establishment, as suddenly something that's okay uh, to, to be using in a particular way. But they're also kind of glossing over perhaps all the you know the politics of psychedelics and the and and you know the, the pros and cons of some of these experiences. Um, and another guy called uh, David Puy is a French um, anthropologist who, for his PhD, spent five years doing research in the Peruvian Amazon, looking at the effects of um, ayahuasca. 
and the, the different kinds of unusual experiences, including presences that people try to um, bring on through ritual use of ayahuasca. Usually Western tourists wanting to go and um, uh, kind of join these retreats and speak to a shaman to develop experiences to sometimes, you know, combat their own difficulties with mental health. And I think the key thing with psychedelics when it comes to something like presence is it's not a um, on-off or a kind of one-shot phenomenon. David's work really, really shows this. It's a, it's a constructed phenomenon. You know, the first time you take ayahuasca, um, you're likely to have very inchoate hallucinatory experiences, if at all. You will have ch massive changes to your body, so your highlights start vomiting and pooing everywhere and everything like that. You probably won't feel that great. Um, but then what you do is you talk to other people in, who, who are also taking it and you talk to the shaman about what kind of things you may or may not have seen and heard or felt. And then you go back in and you do it again and you repeat the cycle and you repeat the cycle. And it may only be on the 10th time or the 12th time of taking it that you start to feel something which distinctly feels like the presence of the other, it, it, say the spirit of ayahuasca. David, I'm pretty sure when he took it, it was something like, the, you know, the 17th or 18th time he took it, they actually really got some uh, distinct sense of hallucination. So um, there, what you've got is the interaction of, you know, neurobiology taking, um, taking these really powerful drugs, which will affect mind and brain, but also social context, social influence, expectations, building towards something that you might be aiming to experience, not just experiencing something completely uncontrolled and, and beyond you. Um, and I, I think that's true of a variety of different unusual experiences as well. There, there will be constructions of mind, brain, and, and cultural influences. Yesterday, we did a show with the uh, American-Mexican art conceptual artist and horror book writer, Leopoldo Gout. Uh, he has a new book out, Piñata, which imagines Mexico City as a layered place where the dead speaks to the living. I mean, obviously, it's fiction and it's surrealist and all the rest of it. But I wonder, in your reference to the hallucinatory quality of life, whether we're on the brink of potentially a new science which suggests that what seems to us in the early 21st century to be hallucinatory might actually be real. Uh, is it conceivable that science is on the brink of redefining what our reality, what reality actually is? In a way, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very big question. If, if the question is really, are we about to show that ghosts are real or something like that, then I would say no. Um, but if the question is more about how our changing understanding of mind and brain actually has much wider implications for how we think about the universe, then the answer might indeed be yes. So you may have had people in the past on your show talking about uh, an idea called predictive coding or predictive processing, which is a, a new framework for how some people are thinking about brain and mind. And, and in a nutshell, what that argues is that um, our experience of the world around us is essentially a projection or a construction based on our expectations. Um, we only update that, uh, essentially that prediction about the world if we get enough um, conflicting signal, what's known as prediction error, and then we change the prediction. But a lot of the time we just go on what we expect to be there. Um, so Anil Seth, who's a, um, a neuroscientist based in the UK, who had a um, great book out last year called Being You, 
Um, he has a really nice way of describing it where he says essentially what we call reality is just that, you know, the, it's essentially the hallucinations that we share that, or that we agree on because we're all, our minds are constructing our experience of the world as opposed to our minds essentially working like a camera and taking a very clear picture of what's out there. When you extend that out and we start to think about uh, the ways in which um, beliefs and ideas and perceptions seem to vary across cultures uh, and indeed vary across individuals in terms of very, very unusual experiences. If we're saying that expectation and belief has such an important role in our perceptions of the world out there, then it's it, we are saying that these things are real, or at least they're real to the person experiencing them. Um, so it's, uh, it's a different way of thinking about the world. It's not necessarily, necessarily saying the metaphysics of the underlying reality is different. It's saying that fundamentally we only have an arm's length view of that reality. You speak about metaphysics, Ben. Maybe Mark Zuckerberg's right to bet his trillion-dollar company on, uh, on the metaverse. Could the metaverse be one of the consequences of this, our embrace, our living in the metaverse? Are you suggesting that some scientists are thinking that we already live in the metaverse in, a, in an odd kind of way? Um, I think, you know, examples like the metaverse show how... Um, we have many different uh, modes of kind of engaging with others. And, and now we have essentially different forms of reality that we could choose to engage in, you know, in either whether it's different forms of kind of digital realms, virtual realms, whether it's simply via kind of text or social media. Um, everybody will have essentially experienced a very different world as a consequence of, of the pandemic and the lockdowns where suddenly you can't see people face to face. You're only seeing people uh, via screens and right towards the end of the book in presence I talk about you know the differences between real social presence versus um, virtual presence and essentially what's missing there what do we what do we miss um, and one of the key things there is along with you know apart from the fact that we can't kind of hold people and you know experience people via the usual senses there's also consequences for just how we construct the social space around us and and how we feel when we're not really in the company of somebody else, they're just this, this picture on a screen. Now, the, the interesting thing about virtual presence is people are actually harnessing some of those ideas now for treating things like psychosis. So they're using virtual reality to put people in situations where they might even be interacting with an avatar of a distressing voice they hear. And when they do that, they'll also ask people, does it really feel like the voice is present? How did that make you feel? What difference did that make? So um, presence is really this kind of multifaceted, faceted phenomenon which has massive implications for our wider experience of the world but also how we treat kind of really distressing unusual experiences